Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today, we hear from Narinda Minhas, the recently appointed CEO of Cardiff Productions, to discuss issues such as the proposed privatisation of Channel 4, as well as the recent reshuffle at the Wales-based indie. Plus, director S.J. Clarkson tells us about helming Netflix courtroom drama Anatomy of a Scandal amid the pandemic. Wales-based indie Cardiff Productions, producer of shows such as the BBC's Tan France, Beauty and the Bleach, changed the structure of its senior management team towards the end of April, with co-founder and co-MD Narinda Minhas becoming CEO of the company. In addition, Narinda's fellow co-founder Pat Young moved from co-MD to non-executive director. Under his new remit, Young will concentrate on company strategy and developing his growing portfolio of external commitments, the company said. Launched in 2020 with a focus on factual programming, Cardiff Productions now has scripted ambitions and is part of Channel 4's Indie Accelerator scheme. Narinda spoke to Clive Whittingham about Young's new role at the Indie, the pros and cons of the pandemic, and what the privatisation of Channel 4 could mean for Cardiff Productions and other Indies like it. The two also discussed the company's push into scripted, as well as the different kinds of representation that need to be addressed for the industry to improve as a place where truly diverse production companies can thrive. Here's the first part of their conversation, which began with Clive asking Narinda about the company's goals. We um, started it in May 2020. Uh, not a great moment because it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. So interesting starting a company just as the pandemic started and, and, and with that kind of severe lockdown that we sort of had. So it felt like a sort of remote company right, right at the beginning. Our aim really was to build uh, a company in Cardiff to build in a base, particularly in the sort of factual area. I mean, I think in drama, uh, Cardiff is is quite a mature market. Uh, and they've been going for some while. They've got some great companies in that sort of space. We felt that the factual area was was a potential opening, really. And Cardiff Productions came out of really Sugar Films, if you like, the Sugar Films factual bit. Pat and I sold our shares in Sugar Films. Um, we had been there five years. We'd done our sort of earnout. We were um, then thinking about what, what else do we do? Um, and we had already built up a subsidiary uh, in Cardiff within Sugar Films, which is based in London and Cardiff. So it was the Cardiff bit we, that we decided to expand. Um, and we could see real potential there, really. I mean, I think um, there's a great talent base that's just a little underutilised that could definitely um, do with more network production um, and could definitely do with just helping to grow, really, uh, that area. And the last two years has been about really establishing that factual base and then broadening out from it to do scripted. In terms of sort of genres, I would say the sort of factual space, we're in the fact tent space, we're in specialist factual, we're also in um, docs, which broadly reflects my own experience as a, as a program maker. I mean, I've operated across all those sort of genres, really. And in some ways, the best television is really in the gaps um, between the genres. And one of the things that we do at Cardiff is not worry about genres. You know, if you have an idea... The, the thing is, what is it? How how is it going to shape up? Um, is it a is it a presenter led thing? Is it a history series? What what is it exactly? And once you've actually worked that out, then I think going to a particular commissioner who's in a, who occupies a particular genre 
is the sort of next stage, really. Um, and so in some ways, it's I find it stifling to think about genres. You mentioned that you guys are, are experienced in the, in the business and it grew out of, of sugar films, as, as you say. I guess that helped during the pandemic when it, all the pitching was done via Zoom, I guess. You, you kind of already had the contact, had the contacts there. But, but how, was, how was that launching a company and then, you know, everything that went on, production shutdown and remote working Zoom meetings? How, how was it for you guys? I, I thought it was I thought it was really really hard at one level. Um, I mean, there, there's two sides to the pandemic. One is I do think there was a kind of certain democratization, if you like, in terms of pitching. The fact that you could get access to a range of commissioners quite quickly, um, and you didn't have to go on a train or a plane to go and go and see them, I think was liberating actually. And I also felt that it was really good giving your team. An opportunity to meet the commissioner as well, because on a Zoom you can have ten people on it. I mean, they fine. Not everybody could do the talking, but but everybody can do the listening. And actually, for some of the junior members of the team to be able to hear those those pitch meetings and to be able to understand the commissioners much better, I thought was incredibly useful. Where I think you suffer, where we where I think we and everybody else probably suffered in in in, in um, the pandemic was. On the development side, I would say it's very, very hard to brainstorm on Zoom, really. I think you need that interaction in an office. You need people to bounce off each other. You need the banter. You need the the, the, the sort of um, uh, games sometimes you play um, in, in development where you're kind of trying to come up with titles or you're trying to shape new territories. However you do it, lots of teams play it very differently. I mean, one of my favourites is just to kick off with um, song titles, actually, and reverse the whole process of coming up with an idea. Normally what you do is you come up with an idea and then you go, hey, what do we call it? Well, why don't you just reverse that, have a title, and then find the content for it? It's it's easier to do that when you're sitting in a room and just having a laugh, I think. Um, so I'd say on the development side, you, you suffer. I think the other area that you probably suffer in, um, in a major way, is actually the editing stage in a film or, or a series. Um, and there was a moment actually when um, we were doing a film called Peter the Human Cyborg about a man who wanted to become half man, half machine. And the, the voiceover artist was, was in London. We were in Cardiff. She was in her son's bedroom recording the voiceover in a teepee uh, which belonged to her son, to cut out the sound because uh, her son was downstairs with her husband playing. And it and that, to me, like, just sums up the whole thing. She was sitting there with a with a microphone in this in this little tent, you know, in the, in, in a room. But we did it. We did it. We pulled it off. We, you know, and it was a perfectly, she, she was brilliant, really professional, and she gave us a great voiceover. But, but I think when you're fiddling around with voiceover or, fine cutting films it's really really hard because what happens at the moment is somebody sends you the link and then you comment on it and then you send it back whereas if you're sitting in a room or you're sitting with a voiceover artist nearby you it's so much easier to just quickly address the problem rather than you know having to do it on on zoom a uh, little um, exec reshuffle last week. One of the reasons we're coming together to, to talk now, um, new title for yourself and, and Pat's moving off to do something slightly different. Can you just walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we set it up, we we I just knew that one of the things Pat wanted to do was to develop 
other roles really he's he's um he's he's just a brilliant uh uh kind of communicator and somebody who actually really enjoys having lots of different things really just one of those classic brilliant portfolio workers really i'm not i like to have one thing on my mind i like to be concentrating on that and if you see my cv it's mostly been about program making really and building up exec credits building up great shows working with great teams um i'm at my happiest when i'm in a cutting room you know um or or developing an idea um whereas pat is you know brilliant at at working on different organizations and um and what what happened increasingly over the last couple of years is that he's, it, that portfolio workload has just increased really and um you know chairing um the Board of Governors at Cardiff University is a huge job. And that's taking up, you know, at least half of his week. So there was no way that he could continue in the sort of same same role as we, we started out. And um, we just felt that we should try and formalise that, really. And, um, and that's why I'm sort of leading now. And he's still involved. He's, he's there. He, he loves the company um, and will actively help us grow. We can also play to some of his strengths, you know, which are to do with strategy and investment and, you know, just, just the whole kind of managerial side of the company, really. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked in three companies. I've, I've kind of got that experience, but, but sometimes you do need somebody who can just take an overview. I think that's really, really important and also be a check and balance on, on, on the way you manage or the way you run things. I think to have that kind of input is really, really important. You're part of the the, the Channel Four um, Indie Accelerator um, as at, at the start. Why? Why uh, for a start? Why sort of take take that backing from them? What what advantages has it provided? And then, I guess the obvious question is: with all the talk of Channel Four being privatised, how how does that potentially change that relationship? Well, I, I think the Channel Four Accelerator um, scheme. Um, has been really, really helpful to us, actually, because one of the things that we wanted to do was to build up a close relationship with Factual Entertainment. Um, I mean, I, I think the formats area in the company is really an important part. We, we basically, just to go back to the earlier description of the company, we're a mixed economy. I mean, I, I would say there are these bespoke projects which we care passionately about, which have diversity at the heart of them, whether it's We Are Black and British or Tan France's new film or, Beauty and the Bleach, where race or identity are sort of important things. I, I think that will always certainly remain with me. I, I think I care about the subject. Um, I think doing doing the odd single that's high profile is, I think, really, really important for the brand. And, it, and actually, they can be commercial as well. I mean, I think, you know, the Tan France film, I'm sure, is going to sell uh, across the world. So I think there's that bespoke side where you've got limited series or you've got singles or whatever then i think you've got the sort of format space really where you know like most companies you're after repeatability really because that's really where you make a company stable it's it's also really commercially where you you do well so for us to lock into a department that wants repeatable ideas was really really important at channel 4 and um, I'd known Alf Laurie, um, you know, um, in, 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 the, in the industry for a while, actually, and he's a great, great guy. And we, we thought that that relationship could be developed with him and Daniel from um, 
And and all we've been doing to with Channel Four is pitching um, uh, formats. Um, and I mean, it, it's it, Channel Four haven't announced this, but we've got something in this space which is which has been commissioned. Um, and I'm sure when they get round to it, they they will announce it. So I I think. Um, it's yielding results, actually. We've got something else in the pipeline as well, which they've just given us development money for. So I I, I think it's good. And I, I think the, the reason why it's good is because what it does, is it breaks down the traditional sort of pitching relationship that you have with commissioners. It's not me kind of walking into a room and saying, hey, I've got this to sell. It's, it's, it's actually just a conversation on the phone, you know. I mean, I can pick up the phone to to either of them and say, look, what, what do you think? Is this worth developing? I mean, it saves an enormous amount of time. It also means that we understand the channel much better. We understand what their needs are and we're, we're reactive, really. Um, and you don't waste loads of time and energy developing stuff that that nobody wants. I guess you. I guess you don't know, but does that does that change if if Channel Four passes into the hands of a, a a big international company? And and I mean, what are your thoughts about that generally? As someone who's run and worked in the in the indie sector so long, Channel Four's there to support that sector, right? How I was all yeah. No, I agree. I was also a commissioning editor at Channel Four, and um, you know, Channel Four has a, a special place um, for me personally, um, and. And I think it has an important space in the ecology of the um, the, the television industry. I I think that um, you know the big issue, the big worry for me about privatisation is softening the remit. Um, and you know, there's a danger if you look back historically over the last twenty years. Um, and having sort of actually um, uh, reviewed a book on Ofcom, and I, I, don't worry, I won't bore you with the with the regulatory structure of Ofcom. But but the one thing I realized was in 2003, there was a major change where they got rid of religion, education, and some aspects of current affairs, I think, um, in their remit. And Channel 4 does not do religion anymore. Um, it, it used to do loads of education, what was defined as education, but it was in a broad definition, really, which was like interesting shows. I think my biggest worry is that remit itself gets kind of watered down and that we basically end up with um, five channels that are quite homogenous. Um, and I think that's not great for viewers. Um, it's also not great for the indie sector, really, because you end up just competing over the same space. You know, I mean, do we all want to make the same types of shows? I don't think we do. And do viewers want the same type of shows? No, I don't. And I think that would be my biggest biggest fear actually is is that by making the channel more attractive to outside buyers you have you have to reduce you have to you have to water down the remit essentially because commercial organizations are not going to move in if they have to do uh, programs about x or y really and they feel they have to do it do it um so you have to make channel four feel like gosh we can make money here let's 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 buy this thing and if you really want to make money, you end up basically subject-wise in the same kind of space, really, as ITV One. You know, so I, 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 don't, I just don't see it. Really, it doesn't make any sense in that, in that, in that way. And, um, and I really hope it doesn't go through. Uh, and I think there's a long way to go. I think there's there's a tough battle ahead, and maybe um, some of the Conservative MPs can be persuaded that this is 
this is not good for Britain, really. Um, and and Channel Four's doing okay. I mean, it's it, you know, I, I think when you think about some of their shows, you know, they they're doing well. I mean, they they seem to be winning awards. Um, I know awards aren't necessarily, you know, a total measure of success, but but they've certainly got some fantastic shows. And I worry that those might disappear actually in the, in the future. What does your scripted look like? You mentioned that that's a that's a, a, a short to medium term ambition. Where where do you want to go with that? Well, we've got we've got three particular projects which are quite far down the road. Actually, I, I would say you know our, our strategy. I, I mean, if I can speak in broad yeah. terms here, because of our roots, um, our our factual factual based producers. I mean, I, I've I've actually exact uh, a drama drama for BBC Two a while ago about. Slavery, but essentially, I, I I come from a factual background. So for us to go into drama, it's it is factually inspired. So the route that we've taken is to option books that we think are interesting, or to option pieces of journalism that we think are are interesting, and then actually look at the the sort of dramatic potential of those pieces of work or that IP, and that's the route that we've approached. And the three projects that we've got. Which you know are at the sort of I mean with one of them we uh, we actually literally decided to pay for a pilot script ourselves. We thought why go down the traditional route of oh we'll pitch for some development money and we'll get some development money and we'll get a writer on board. We had a we had a writer in mind um, partly because he he'd done a podcast about the subject, and we decided that we would spend X thousand pounds on paying him and us put it, put to put together an actual pilot script. So we are now ready to go to market and we will be in a um, month, month's time with another international kind of, um, I would say they're drama sales salespeople and we, we've done a deal with them. We're, we're, we're practically ready to go to the market with a, with a pilot script for an eight part international series. Um, based on an American story, not not a story from here. Um, we have another project which is being funded by Creative Wales, um, uh, and again, that's to produce a drama treatment for a Welsh subject, which we believe has international appeal as well. Um, and then the other project is with is actually a co-pro with a very well known. Um, drama producer that we're working with um and that is on a again a very international based sort of project um so i think i would say that the dramas have a very much a kind of cardiff flavor to them i would say they they they're not explicitly necessarily about race but they're certainly about you know outsiders they're about sort of identity they raise questions about um, you know who we are, etc. I, I think I think they have that sort of flavour, our flavour, if you like, a little bit edgier, um, and not not sort of fluffy, if you like. Um, and so I, I would say that our dramas are in the same spirit as our factual. Really, it's not like we're suddenly creating a new company. I would say that to go back to the initial conversation, you come up with an idea, or you see something which can be turned into an idea. It can go factual. It can go entertainment. It could go drama, and I and I think you shouldn't really worry about it. And I think, I think I'm lucky that I've actually 
worked for a lot of different in, in a lot of different genres and i've i've kind of worked at the bbc i've worked at channel four in senior positions and i don't have a huge amount of problems sort of moving between all these genres and and i think that gives us that flexibility to just decide what that idea is there's just certain types of stories out there that have not been told and i and i think because we're playing in the international field i think that gap is is there actually um and we we hope to occupy it you you mentioned like story stories not being told i always feel really awkward asking these questions so forgive me when this comes out horribly clumsily but there's a lot of talk or there has been a lot of talk in the industry about improving firstly in in the uk working with the nations and regions obviously you're a welsh-based production company there's also more uh, talk about um getting more bame led production companies more more work more representation in the in the business and and you guys tick that box as well yeah sometimes i've felt over 11 years at c21 that I've gone to Edinburgh and Real Screen and have heard people talk about this and they kind of played lip service to it, like nothing improved over the following 12 months. And we went back to Edinburgh and everyone said the same thing all over again. Is it, is it better, getting better? Can more be done? Uh, what's what's the situation in, in 2022 on the other side of the pandemic on, on those specific fronts? I I think um, I think it's definitely getting better. Um I, let, I mean, there are two. There are two issues there. One is the 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 BAME issue, if you like, um, which I let me deal with first. Actually, I, I would say, I would say, there's three aspects which sometimes get get conflated. One is um, uh, representation, um, uh, which is who are the characters on on the screen, um, and and um, is there a a black family escaping to the countryside, right? That 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 gets a big tick. It's also low hanging fruit, um, um, and that change has happened, and it's happening, and and um, and there's no question about that, really. I mean, there are just there's just many many more um, black families or brown families on on television. There's no question about that. I mean, maybe the questions around that are the types of portrayal. I mean, look, I'm I'm I, I was born in India, came over as a kid, um, and I was seven when I came over, didn't speak any English. And um, and when I was growing up, I, I didn't see people like me on television um at all, actually. So I think we've we've changed. We there's no question about that. But that is the low-hanging fruit. Um, and now it's a question of what type of representation. I mean, you know, the number of super brands using Asians as as people who are who know about tech and um uh, are good good with finances you know it, we, we see that but we don't see we don't see Asian footballers or we don't see other types of representation it's the same with the black community we see them as musicians we see them as um uh in mixed race relationships but we don't necessarily see the other more rounded side to, to, to those communities. And I think that's probably the next phase in representation. But anyway, by and large, I'd say there's been a big stride forward actually on that front. Um, behind the camera, which is which is the, ne- the next area of the three, I would say, again, I'd say we've, we've seen some strides. Um, I'd say the big issue there is um, certain sort of 
bottlenecks, really. I I don't, I mean, I went through a conventional route, you know, I came over as an immigrant, but I went to university and I went through traditional route coming to television. I really don't see why you need a degree to work in television. And, and I think we should be encouraging a wider group of people to come into television who don't have that kind of formal education. It's not necessary. It really isn't necessary, actually. Um, and people can learn a lot of things on the job. Um, and you don't need to have a, uh, an English degree or a history degree or whatever degree to, to get in. And I think as soon as you change that, you will entry level, you will open up the kinds of people that you get because not everybody gets to university. I mean, it's still a big deal actually for a lot of families, particularly, you know, I'm from a working class background. I, I think it's a struggle actually now. Particularly, particularly now with the, the way the cost has just become ridiculous, right? It to- totally. So what, 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 and also all this work experience stuff, you know, just limits the types of people that you have. Um, I think that, you know, it's still a lot easier for posh people to get, get into television, really. And if you're 22 and you've got parents who are wealthy, they can afford for you to spend a year not not doing anything uh, yeah. or not being paid, really. So, so I think that that stuff um, needs to change at entry level. I, I'd say the big problem on behind the camera is really the senior jobs, actually, and um, and those do need to change, uh, and we do need to change on that front. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, we're a bit behind, say, on gender gender equality on that. So a few years back, I seem to remember there was a big debate around why, why isn't there a female controller? Why isn't there a female head of this or head of that? I do think that's changing on, on that front. I mean, I think Charlotte Moore, um, there's a whole host of people in very senior jobs at the BBC. You can't really say that for um BAME, I mean, I don't particularly like that term, but I don't think you can say it for BAME, but for BAME people, really. I don't think we've got, we've never had um, a director of programs at Channel 4 that comes from that kind of background. We've never had um, heads of department at the BBC who come from that department. We certainly never had controllers. Um, so those those um, uh, jobs in the, in the sort of top positions are still, I'm afraid, not very diverse. So I would say that that's the second area. The third area, which actually often gets neglected, which is something that we at Cardiff feel very strongly about, is uh, diversity of content, uh, which isn't to do with people necessarily, because, I mean, you know, anybody can come up with a diverse idea, if you like. It doesn't, you don't have to be brown or black to want to do a history of rap or or whatever it is that you decide is is diverse for you um i think that that's the bit that i would worry about in privatization the diversity of content that's the bit i always worry about when when the bbc is being attacked um is the diversity of content i i think to restrict that and i mean the broadest spectrum of political thought i mean the broadest spectrum of looking at the world from a very different kind of angle you know i mean isn't it great at the moment that Tan France's film on colorism is going out at 9 p.m. on, on BBC Two? That's that's brilliant. But imagine a future where people don't have the opportunity to see something like that and it's actually put on the margins of the schedule. Um, or you just limit those ideas to seasons, which has been the traditional route, which is like, oh, let's have a let's have a season about India 
or yeah. whatever. And then you <laughs> get about four programs about India, and then that's it. And then people say, oh, we've done India, et cetera. So, whereas, in fact, you know, they're, they're just program ideas that, that should interest all sorts of people, really. Um, so I'd say diversity of content, diversity of thought is, um, is a third neglected area and that broad issue around diversity, if you like, of, of, of the sort of BAME, BAME issue. On, on the nations thing, um, I think the debates there are, are, are very, very different, actually. I think there, I, I would say that um, we, the I would say that the Welsh industry needs to feel more confident. Um, I think the talent is there. I mean, it's very interesting, actually. The 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 I'm generalising, but I, I'd say you know I've spent a lot of time in England. I would say the English and Scots are quite vocal. You know, I'd say they they don't have problems shouting shouting from the rooftops. They don't have a problem networking. They don't have a problem opening doors and crashing through them. I'd say the Welsh are more diffident. Actually, it's very interesting um, when you're doing a fact tent show in Wales. You can't really cast for conflict because the Welsh are too nice to each other, and that's not, and that's I, not I, a bad thing. Oh, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I think that is a good thing um, at one level. Uh, but what it does mean is actually the Welsh producers don't necessarily um, shout enough, and I don't think they ne- necessarily um, um, knock down doors in the way that other other groups do. And I and I think so. I say confidence is an issue there and i think they just need to recognize that they're talented and they should be doing network shows and they should be doing all sorts of shows really um i think that um i I think it's a shame that um cardiff wasn't one of the hubs um i mean it seemed like to me a natural place um it's got potential to grow quite big um and I, I think there's there's structural stuff, I think, that would help the nations, really. Um, and I think that, you know, when if factual stuff, I mean, if factual stuff and drama stuff was actually commissioned out of, directly out of Wales and you had senior people there, I think that would make a, a massive difference, actually. Um, and I, I don't know whether that will ever happen. Um, I know people have moved, the broadcasters have moved some of their resources out, but they've not decentralized decision-making um, sufficiently, I would say. Um, and I think you need to have some senior people out there and Cardiff is just as good a place as any, really. Um, or you need to have some genres out here that that the Cardiff community to kind of lock into. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that it is happening, actually. I would say the, you know, I, I, I don't know what the, the percentages or targets are now um but i would say with bbc and channel 4 they're working really really hard on this front um and i think slowly things will get there actually i'm kind of confident about that S.J. Clarkson has made her name as a television director on both sides of the Atlantic, with credits on British shows such as Footballers Wives, Bad Girls, Hustle, Mistresses and Whitechapel. In the US, she directed hit series including Heroes, Dexter, Orange is the New Black, Jessica Jones, The Defenders and Succession. 
Her latest project is Netflix courtroom drama Anatomy of a Scandal, based on Sarah Vaughan's book of the same name, created and written by David E. Kelly and starring Sienna Miller, Michelle Dockery and Rupert Friend. Clarkson spoke to Michael Picard about helming the suspenseful thriller amidst the pandemic and how her start in theatre influenced her cinematic style. I got sent the book pre-published probably about three years ago, actually. And I'm a very slow reader, but I ended up devouring it very, very quickly. I think I read it in an, uh, in a day or a day and an afternoon or something and was so captivated by it. And, and it was such a great read and a thriller and so engaging. It was sort of obvious this would make a great adaptation. And I was on another show at the time. And then I think it all sort of happened quite quickly where we got together and it was David and myself and Melissa and, you know, Liza. And we went to see Netflix. And, and then I flew home and I had like a week off and then I did some soft prep during that week and then we went into lockdown so it was kind of like we did we did then have to sort of sit out for about five months I think it was although as I do say you know the pandemic and the, and the lockdown was kind of awful but the one gift it gave us was we had this three-month opportunity to kind of really work on the scripts whereas often you're going into a drama with the scripts nearly done or kind of almost there uh, and I think that's the norm really but because of the pandemic Melissa and I were able to sort of she was in New York I was in London and we were able to zoom sort of daily and you know or every other day and kind of really turn these six scripts around because six is a lot and when you start the show and you're directing all six you want to make sure that they're as ready as possible because you don't really have time to be prepping whilst you're shooting that's not really an option so yeah so I guess when you look at it that way I'd say it's probably been around just over two years because I think I started this on February the 13th 2020 so just over two years from start yeah. to finish and, and what was it yeah. then about the the story Sarah's novel or immediately captured your imagination and you thought this could be a great TV show because I imagine for directors, a courtroom drama, maybe part of the challenge is, is wondering how you're going to make this exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I always did courtroom dramas until now for, for the very reason of, I think they're hard to sustain. They're hard to sort of be engaging. And I ended up, I think I did a, did a courtroom in a show called Life on Mars years ago. And I, and I thought that was the only time I, I did it. And there's, I kind of like the pomp of it though, a bit like Kate. I quite enjoy the, the pomp of the courtroom and layout and but I suppose that I suppose the courtroom was sort of the byproduct of reading this amazing thriller with these incredibly exciting characters this compelling story that I felt did twist and turn and had reveals that were surprising and satisfying when you read a book like that I immediately just sort of saw the cinematic opportunities of it and rather than the courtrooms feeling like a burden they were a blessing they were like wow we could do something really exciting with this yeah because it's all about courtrooms are really about retelling of stories aren't they and and what I became fascinated by was what how we misremember how inaccurate maybe our memory is and if you could show that in a cinematic way that could make it incredibly exciting definitely yeah I mean yeah you mentioned you've not really done a courtroom drama before I mean how would you compare you know this to other projects you've worked on because you know looking at some of the shows you've done you've done some amazing shows you know both in the US and, and here in the UK but you tend to perhaps maybe this is my false interpretation but you tend to sort of go in do episodes come out again but here you're doing all six episodes you're really taking authorship of the show from the start so how how was that kind of in your mindset when you took up the project yeah I mean it's interesting isn't it I've done a lot of pilots and where you kind of start the show and you leave and I think though those are back in the day when when series used to be long running when I think a director couldn't do 24 episodes or even 10 or whatever but that you know What's exciting about it? This is the third time, actually, I've done it. I did Love Nina, which was a five-part series, and I did Collateral, which is a four-part series. And I suppose it's like making a giant movie because you take ownership from start to finish. 
Um, so that's exciting and also terrifying because there is no let up. You have six episodes of television in your head continually and you're juggling them. And like all dramas, you know, you don't shoot in continuity, you're block shooting. So you're in the courtroom and you're shooting all the courtroom. And normally what you would do is if you're in a courtroom, which I've done before, is you go in, you sort of go, do a week, couple of weeks in the courtroom, then you'll pop out and have have a breather and maybe do some location work. But because of the pandemic, we were doing all the courts <laughs> courtroom at the same time. So I think you have to, I, I think when you take on a six episode series, you really are sort of authoring the entire thing and with its challenges and it's an awful lot of material to keep in your head at the same time. But what's liberating is, you know, if you don't catch something in, in this scene here, then you've got the opportunity to get it later on. And, and, you know, one thing about dramas that we all know when you've done it long enough is you can have a great idea about how you're going to do it. And on the day, things are going to change and you need to be fluid. So if you are the custodian of all of them, then you then you can sort of run with that fluidity a little bit more. And if things change or if things didn't land, you can pick it up later on. You can make sure you hone it in those moments. So, yeah. And also it's it's brutal. The schedule is brutal. You are filming for 90 days for us during a global pandemic. So it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. Definitely. And so pandemic aside, perhaps, how do you like to work in that pre-production phase with the writers or do you let them get on and, and then deliver you? The oh, script? no, I think I think you're very much involved. I mean, it was the same mm-hmm. as how I was with David Hare on Collateral. I used to go over to his studio and we used to read the read the scripts out together. And I, and I think that's a really great way of kind of getting under the skin of it when you actually say it aloud. Uh, also, it was awful because neither of us are particularly good actors, although he might he might disagree. But um, and I think the same with Melissa. She and I spent a lot of time, you know, we would have group chats with David and then Melissa and I would sort of go and wrestle with it and, and work through scenes. And that was the gift I said of the pandemic, you know, having that three months to actually sit down and, and kind of really wrestle with the scripts and really steer them. So by the time we did go to shoot, we were actually in a position where we had six pretty much locked scripts. That's not to say things didn't change and things didn't get tweaked, but we'd done so much of the kind of steering of it and and certainly in terms of infusing it with the directorial vision you know it was so nice to have that down on the page so things like the courtroom were already steering in the direction of how we were going to play those flashbacks and cutting in and out was already part of the sort of vocabulary of the script and then yeah we and as we watch the series i mean yeah initially it looks like there might be two timelines but then we realize they're kind of just two parts of the same story coming together but then we do have flashbacks and things so was the the structure of the the show quite a wrestle you know something to figure out how you would keep the flashbacks you know natural perhaps in in the storytelling of the court drama yeah two things really about the flashbacks in terms of the technicalities of them one is where they land when because you want flashbacks to move the current story on right so it's about it's about what you're showing in flash flashback is part reminiscing but part giving us more information or sowing seeds and laying breadcrumbs of where we're going so that was quite a challenge to know when where to land them and which ones to have in because there were more in the book that we didn't put in and we actually created some of our own for the series to help us with the way we were sort of steering the narrative so it was about that and then for me the other challenge was how do we get in and out of them in an organic way that makes it feel that makes you absolutely land that this is this character's flashback but also there are times when we go into it with one person and out of it maybe with another or that it's misremembered or what do we see in it so there were there were those things really to land is where where to put them and they and they did move there, there are certain flashbacks i think the end of episode three was originally in five and kind of like you know so there's a lot of moving it around about you know 
as you go through a six-part series, you sort of almost have to get to the end. It's very easy to kind of keep working on the first few episodes because they're done and kind of keep fixing those. But you, but but we sort of made sure we got all the way through to the end, then took a view, and then it, it became quite apparent where things probably needed to be moved and things that needed to come up earlier, seeds of doubt or seeds of intrigue laid sooner. You know, so that was quite the challenge of that. But I think pretty much where they landed after our craft in it is where they've landed in the show. I don't think there's many that have moved, if any. Yeah. I mean, would you say for people who've read the book and and then come to watch the series, would you say it's a very authentic adaptation or have you had to change a lot to kind of get it into that six hour kind of structure? Well, like any adaptation, it has to evolve, I think. And and the book is always this amazing foundation and, and the core really of what the show's about. I mean, if anything, that was my Bible. That's what you return to is if in doubt, how? How is that? Is it a true adaptation? The thing that's so unique about the book is the way Sarah wrote it is each chapter is from a different character's perspective. So obviously that's something that you could do in in a drama. We did talk about it, but I think that makes the episodes quite finite in a way, you know. And so that in itself, you have to liberate yourself that. So it's very different. But I think what we do hopefully do successfully is move between the characters quite effortlessly like she does in the book and kind of you get you get wrapped up in each other's stories and maybe don't question why you're going over here even though you may think why are we going with this person now so I I hope that's true and I think as I said before I think we've really tried we've really tried to sort of take the spirit of the book and the essence of it and the fact that it is this incredibly engaging page turning thriller and I hope that that is reflected in the show that you get to episode one and you have to watch two. And, and my hope is it is the ultimate binge watch. But I, I suppose that's what I felt when I read the book. I, I kept turning the page. I kept turning the page. And I was like, I have to infuse the, the cinematic storytelling with this same level of, it, of engagement and propulsion. Yeah, yeah. Was Sarah kind of with you on set perhaps? Or did you speak to her a lot about her thoughts of adapting the, the, her novel? Or did, was she quite happy to kind of let you let you go and, and take it as you wanted? She wasn't on set set you know at all um but she was very much around sort of on on the phone during the during the writing process i mean obviously we had the you know david e kelly at the helm who is you know who knows his knows his stuff when it comes to courtroom dramas that's for sure and sarah is very much a part of those the script process you know she would get drafts and then she would feed back and you know as, as ever when you're adapting things change and and evolve you know and she was always incredibly supportive as long as it stayed in line with the the, the original material which is what my intention always was I think if it's been a successful book you don't want to kind of veer too far away from it because ultimately if the audience know and love the book that's what they're going to be coming to the series with you know so you need to hopefully honour that but but elevate it and give something unexpected as well that doesn't deter from the original material but brings something else and so as you, as you kind of started then to think about how you were going to film the show I mean do you have uh, your own kind of visual style would we look at it and say this is this is you or did you kind of oh I don't know I'm probably not the best <laughs> judge of that I think that's I think that's for the for anyone that watches television and, and film or, or my work to, to kind of make that judgment I think what I try to do with each piece is go what does this story need there are SJ-isms in it for sure I mean if you look at my work you can see there's shots that I enjoy I always enjoy to add a little bit of theatricality I started in theatre so whenever I can have a little bit of fun with it like I do at the end of the episodes those sort of uh, let's call them cinematic punctuations at the end of each episode is, is definitely sort of a, a probably 
probably a directorial flair, whether it's an SJism, I don't know. I'm not the first director to do anything like that. But uh, what I always try and do is, is go, what does the material need? And I've done an awful lot of flashbacks uh, in many of my shows. You know, uh, I seem to gravitate towards those. And I did them relatively successfully in a show called Jessica Jones. So it's always about, OK, they work really well. How do I not do that? How do I do something else? So because you could bring that stuff and go, well, that's my style. But it's like, OK, how can I now move this on? And, you know, so I think for me, cinematically, what I got excited about was that sort of the memory and misremembering and fragmented memory and how I could show that cinematically in a fresh, engaging way that would make you sort of lean in and then also question, you know, to continually I'm playing with the audience to kind of lure them in and then show a misdirect that somebody's misremembered. And then you're thinking, hang on a minute, you know. So that to me was at the essence of it. And then, you know, that was a benefit to courtroom scenes. One of our courtroom scenes, I think, was 44 pages. And in a British courtroom, you don't get to walk around. You don't get to do all this wonderful blocking with the, you know, prosecution parading around the court. They stand up and they speak and then they sit down. You're like, oh, God, I've got to do something with this so you know much thought you know in those early days went into the actual geography of the courtroom you know I put Sienna in the public gallery because it felt like a theatre it felt like she was watching her life play out in front of her and it kept her out of the kind of direct action which which felt like as the show goes on she gets more and more removed and yet we get more and more psychologically with her so it's things like that that you're always thinking about. So to impose a, a single style on that, I think would almost be doing a disservice to the to the narrative of the piece. So I kind of read it and think, what does this need? And, and obviously each director has their toolbox or box of tricks, whatever you like to call it, that you that you pull upon to hopefully deliver the maximum, you know, ride, an engaging ride of a, of a TV show, that, of a series that you can just sort of completely get pulled into. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, it's, it's, it is a beautiful looking show, isn't it? I mean, it's a Real, you know, you've got the uh, the Palace of Westminster and, and Big Ben, those location shots, and and the courtroom, you know, looks very VFX, impressive. but yeah. Well, yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, maybe. But um, and you know, obviously that the houses are, are obviously all stunning houses, so it's you know, it has a very lavish look to it. And then you're, you know, in some of the shots, you're using reflections and, and mirrors and things. So is that all part of the toolbox, perhaps, that you wanted to kind of bring to it, just to keep it, you know, entertaining, perhaps, for the viewer, rather than just a fixed camera on a on a point, lots of moving cameras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, I like moving cameras. I guess if there's an SJ style, I think my camera moves a lot because yeah. I like to keep things moving um, because I wanted to get this sense of propulsion with this piece that you will be propelled forward continually um, with the characters and the story and, and going with them on sometimes this convulsive kind of like momentum but for some of them at times. In terms of the sets, I mean, most of them were built. The courtrooms are built, the houses are built. You yeah. know, I couldn't find a house that I want that, that that had that geography, that layout that I'm looking for because I'm always looking for those developing shots and knew I wanted to follow both Sophie and James through the house and through this maze of it and show that opulence and that affluence and that world that they were living in and how amazing it is and who wouldn't want that but at what cost is the question so I suppose you need to have that level of, of kind of opulence to it and that's where you work sort of so closely with your key team like you know my designer Melanie Allen and Melanie Allen genius and we brought in Alice Felton to do the set deck of the White House he did just such a brilliant job at sort of bringing in a modernity to what was also sort of part of the establishment really you know and then uh, my location manager who I think is the best in London is Antonia Grant and she managed to pull together five different locations including one in Manchester for the Houses of Parliament 
So it was about, it's about really kind of working with your team, you know, as a director and pulling on their resources and their talents, you know, and then getting the brilliant first AD, as in my case was Richard Stiles, to actually help pull a schedule together that we could actually complete because it was so, the magnitude of it was huge. And then my longtime collaborator, Balage, follow go to light it and shoot it so you know it really is about sort of pulling all those things together and that's the gift of the job really that's that's the gift of being a director you get to work with all these amazing people that make you look good you know <laughs> very modest um and and then on the other side of the camera you know what do you have a way you like to work with the cast obviously um you know michelle dockery and, and sienna miller you know most notably are, are no strangers to to working in tv so what was it like working with them and and do you have rehearsals or, or a way you like to work on set with your actors yeah, I mean, kind of to not to sort of sound like a, a, a kind of oh, I'm on repeat, but I think again, every act is different, and you and then, so there's no specific style I have. I do tend to do certain things in rehearsals that kind of are the same for each. I have a bunch of questions that I talk to the actors about. I'm not really one for sitting down, talking through the script and going through scenes. We do pick certain scenes because I think it's very useful to hear scenes read aloud, but often I'll switch the characters over so they'll each read each other's part. <clears throat> I also do a little bit of movement, probably my theatre background coming in where you sort of do some movement stuff and some sort of theatre games. It was made a little bit more difficult on this because of the pandemic. So we were all, we weren't in bubbles as it were, you know, people talk about the bubble system. I think the show as a whole tried to kind of keep itself, you know, we were, we were during a lockdown. So it meant that you didn't go out, you know, um, but we tried to keep it that we didn't sort of infiltrate other casts because, you know, Michelle's not really with Sienna until the courtroom. So all of those things are separate. So no need to, re- and no need for them re- to rehearse together either. But Josette Simon, who plays um, the defence barrister for James Whitehouse, Angela and Michelle, we worked with uh, a legal consultant. We did rehearsals of like robing up mm-hmm. because that's the thing you don't think about. Those actresses do not know how to put on a wig and put on all that garb and your arm goes in and there's a hole that, oh, where does this hole? Oh my God, it's not in the sleeve it's you know and you we needed I knew in the opening scene I wanted them to be able to put that robe in on effortlessly that they just sort of slung it on so that was something we rehearsed we rehearsed getting in and out of that costume and putting the wig on without a mirror understanding how you could do that because then it seems effortless and real and you know my job is to just try and make everything feel real so it's about making the actors feel that they've done something so many times that they can then just be free to, to do the job you know and then you talk about the characters I like to do sort of a director actor surgery as it were you know often with the writer in this case we have Melissa and you you sort of you sit down and you talk through the scenes and you really go what's not working for you so it's like going to see the GP what do you not like about it what's not working um what are you struggling with what are you most nervous about and you talk through those things because often the actors will have a really great insight that you don't know about or something that you haven't thought about and so that way they can you know you're you're again being fluid you're working with them you know and then you sense what each actor needs from you and then you sort of work accordingly yeah I mean how, how do you, you talked about those kind of theatrical flourishes at the end of the episodes and I guess particularly episode one and two it's like the characters have been hit by a truck and, <laughs> and they're kind of just sent flying I mean how can you talk us through that how did you kind of create that effect well you know sometimes you're lucky enough that when you read something you get these ideas and I was just thinking about how you always want to go how do I end the episode with a bang or with a punch so literally in Rupert's case it was like if you've just been through this episode of like oh shit I had an affair I've not it's going to come out in the press. I've told my wife, it didn't mean anything. It was this, it was that. And then and then he sort of at the end of it gets stopped by the police for questioning. That's a gut punch, right? And I was like, well, rather than just say it's a gut punch, 
what about if we show that metaphorically, like literally, you know, that that sort of, he's punched in the gut. And I talked to Rupert about it. He was like, I'm well up for that. He said, that sounds great. So I was like, that's the thing. You've got to get the actors behind it. So he was like, great. And then, you know what? That is testament to Rupert because we lost the location. So I had to film that somewhere else, the House of the Parliament and VFX stuff in the background. And and we didn't get the rig that we wanted because in theory for that, for that you needed a rig that's kind of both lifted him and pulled him back, but we could only pull him back. So Rupert had to do the lift himself. I love that man for doing that lift for me. He did it so many times. Uh, we shot it on the Phantom so that it was shot at, I think we did it at 400 frames per second. I think I think it might have been, but then we had to take it down to 300 because we were losing the light. And as you know, the Phantom, you need light. And we, of course, that was the last thing we shot on the very last day as the sun is setting, you know, typical. So uh, that needed quite a bit of grading from our brilliant uh, colorist, Jet Omashebi, who saved the day with that. But, but in terms of the shot itself, that was Rupert doing the lift and then we had our stunt team pulling him back and then obviously you paint out all the other stuff and then for Sienna at the end of episode two I always felt that was such a moment for her when sort of she was free falling you know she just has heard this testimony and she thought that it was over she thought it was nothing it was just sex even though we hear that she's kind of allowed herself to believe it until she's in that courtroom and I thought the moment she stands up she probably would have toppled over the edge I just thought oh, you'd just stand up and probably just topple over and I thought we can't do that because that's too dramatic in the scene but I wonder if we can do it in her own mind and so the idea was her your instinct is get out get out get out so for me it was just like get out of that courtroom as quickly as possible disorient she's feeling disorientated so to make sure that we counted with her a lot turned the camera upside down when she runs away it's sort of like everything is kind of turning upside down for her and then when she gets back she sort of enters her room and it just reminds her of entering the lift you know how again memory is just triggered sometimes by the smallest of things so her just re-entering her sitting room was like her entering the lift and then remembering what she was feeling in the lift and then she doesn't just sort of remember the feeling she's actually seeing it she's starting to spiral and sort of her imagination is running wild with her and then you end with the free fall so those were fun moments and obviously that was a stunt person you know not sienna and face replacement and all of that but you know you you then so then again you think about that and then you're like when we build the set we have to build the set knowing that i'm going to have somebody drop through the ceiling you know so those are all big things that and of course we'd started building the set and i was like hey i really wanted to fall through the ceiling and then you're like that's where your brilliant team come in and go that's okay we can figure that out let's just talk it all through so yeah but luckily i had those ideas quite early on in the in the show but I think it's all it's just fun for the audience to sort of get, give a sort of a cinematic punch at the end of it yeah yeah I mean yeah it's, it's physical but also ties in with the emotion of, of the scene yeah, it's psychological so, but, yeah. it's, it's hopefully driven by psychology you don't ever want to kind of just impose it on it because then I think you are just sort of doing style over substance which well, if you do that too many times and you can do it, there are moments, but you take it out of the grounded nature of what I hope this is. I hope it's grounded, even though there's a sort of a, a kind of a heightened quality to it, really. And when you look back on making the show, are there particular challenges or or just fun things that you were, were pleased you managed to pull off? You know, what do you kind of most remember looking back on it now? Gosh, I mean, in some ways, the end of the episodes are fun. I, I really enjoyed those. And then sometimes it's the unseen thing. It is the fact that the House of Parliament is made out of five different locations. One yeah. of them happens to be in Manchester and they were shot sort of five months apart so I had to keep in my head Rupert entering a door you know when we started shooting in November and then coming through the other side of the door when we finished shooting in March that that was a lot of keeping all of that in my head and, and the fluidity because on the day you think you're going to shoot left to right and you end up not being able to so you're shooting right to left and then you've got to remember that join the other side so thank God for my brilliant script supervisor who would just I'd go don't forget that and she'd write it down and remember to tell me so Tessa Kimball is 
this goddess. And uh, yeah, I think, you know what? I think it was also the sense of achievement. Everybody worked so hard. That cast, you know, some of those scenes were very long dialogue scenes, especially in the courtroom. And for Sienna, plotting out Sophie's journey and making sure that every scene we did something different, we revealed something new, we uncovered something, we discovered something. All of those sort of small nuances that keep those characters going, you know, all of those things I think are probably, you know, a, a major kind of achievement of everybody involved, really. And what was wonderful is we still managed to have some fun during a global pandemic, you know, and it was all that testing, which I'm sure everybody knows about so well now, but it was learning about the testing. They, this was all being set up at that time. So getting in early and the, that sort of fear of 24 hours of hoping your results were negative, <laughs> you know, all of those things of dealing with that every day. And, and so it was, it was, I feel very privileged to have done it really. And, and even though it did take two years because of a pandemic, we probably are a stronger bonded group as a result you know and the fact that it, you you see it and I hope you don't see masks in the back of the shop there might be one somewhere that I couldn't get to but you know I'll let, if anybody can find it big 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 brownie points to them but um you know about about you know keeping the pandemic away from it because it's a parallel universe in a way and as, you, as you, we mentioned earlier you know parliament was VFX you know because it's covered in scaffolding still it's coming down now so that people will think we probably just shot it but it, it's um it, it was covered in scaffolding so we had to recreate that because we wanted it to be sort of a parallel it's not our world it's a parallel version and and just before i run out of time i was just interested to know you know having worked on both sides of the atlantic and for a number of years now i mean how do you just see your role as, as a director kind of changing is it are there new challenges you're facing today that you weren't 10 years ago or, or what's kind of new and exciting for you i think i find every job challenging <laughs> so that's good and the, and the day i don't is the day i should probably give up um which sounds like a cliche, but it is. Every every job has its own challenges, and it honestly doesn't matter how many episodes, pilots, series, films you've done. I think every job is its own new challenge. I think what's exciting for the industry now is just how much content there is out there, how many platforms there are. There are, it's like there are so many opportunities to find a place for your voice. And I think that is incredibly exciting. And, and something that, you know, I started off when, you know, remember Channel 4 being launched, not as a director, but sort of as a as a child, and then Channel 5 and BBC three and four. And that was a lot, you know. And all of a sudden, all of these platforms now. Uh, make it incredibly exciting but also challenging because there are you know I think there was an article in The Guardian just the other day highlighting some of the things we've all been talking about that it's hard to crew it's hard to find people because there is so much work out there so I think it's it's a blessing and a burden isn't it you've got these amazing opportunities but you know and if we get it right then we can sort of nurture new talent and new skill set coming through then you know won't Britain be such a great place for production and how exciting would that be you know same on both sides of the Atlantic and to your point you know everybody asks what's the difference what's it like and you know directing is directing and it's sort of the magic of this of what we do you go to america and it might have a slightly different title or it might be a slightly different dynamic in the setup but your designer's your designer and your art director and your key grip and you and you start talking it's like we all know this same language and it doesn't matter that we've only just met we have this language and if you don't know what you're talking about you can reference but it's like that shot in this film or it's like that because everyone's a filmmaker so you sort of it's it's the same different of course and but that's you know what what makes it exciting and keeps you on your toes but thankfully we all speak the same filmmaking language that's all for this episode you can hear full versions of all those discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our c21 fm internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from monday 
The podcast will be back next Friday. And in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Nico Franks. Thanks for listening.